happy to welcome to Forward Guidance, Thomas Majewski, founder and managing partner at Eagle Point Credit. So let's start off. You are a big investor. Your firm is a big investor in CLOs, collateralized loan obligations. Can you just uh, explain for the audience, what is the structure of a CLO? What are the different parts? And why do you find them attractive? What sort of drew you to the space? CLOs are securitizations or kind of discrete pools of loans. The L in CLO is for loan. And our CLOs typically own small pieces of large loans to big American companies, companies that we know and do business with every day, anything from Co to Samsonite Luggage to uh, the company that makes wings for Boeing 777s and, and lots of other companies in between are some of the borrowers that come into our market. These are large companies in most cases, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in revenue each year. And they employ across all of our CLOs, tens of millions of people in the United States. These loans are quite resilient. In many cases, they're below investment grade rated, often rated double B or single B. So there is some degree of risk in the underlying investments. But because the loans are senior and secured and floating rate, a lot of the other variability that comes into investing in high yield bonds and other below investment grade securities really doesn't come into the CLO market. When rates go up like they have over the last year, rather than getting marked down 10, 20, 30 points, depending on the duration of your bond, loans just get a higher coupon, which is great. And because they're senior and secured, when things go awry, and some companies will have some credit problems every single year, and we'll talk about our outlook for credit what's both what's been happening and what we see happening in the near term. At a minimum, when things get in trouble, you want to be first in line. And frankly, the loans in our CLOs are first in line. Now, what we take, and maybe one last point on loans, despite their below investment grade rating, for 28 of the last 31 years, the loan asset class, the Credit Suisse Leverage Loan Index, which is sort of the Russell 2000 of loans, has had a positive total return in 28 of the last 31 years since the inception of the index. And that's truly remarkable. When you think about our risk asset class, it's very unusual to find something that delivers such consistent positive total returns. This year, the loan index is up over 10%. And absent a big surprise here in the, in the last 20 days of the year, which will be yet another positive year of total returns. What CLOs do is take large, diverse pools of those loans, typically 150 loans, maybe a few more or a few less, and put them into a, a, a special vehicle, sort of like a fund of sorts. And then they, they sell and tranche up, and that's where it starts getting interesting, into senior classes, AAAs and AA's and highly rated paper, to some mezzanine classes, the double B and triple B. And then an equity class, which is a lot of where Eagle Point invests, although we also invest in junior debt for some of our strategies. And that, this is where it gets interesting. And on one hand, when, when people look at CLO and they, they see CLO equity, their immediate thought is, well, wait, you're highly, you're, you're in a levered investment. We'll make some comparisons between a CLO and a bank in a minute to these below investment grade credits. Boy, if credit gets bad, you'd be the first to take a loss, which in theory, that could happen. But what's very, very interesting about CLOs and what attracted me to the asset class back in the 1990s when I got my start in the space was there's something very unusual about a CLO structure that exists in almost no other form of securitization. And that is most CLOs have something called a reinvestment period. And what that allows is for any paydowns on loans, amortization payments, if the collateral manager or servicer, the person operating the CLO on a day-to-day -day basis, if they sell a loan or in the unlikely event a loan defaults and the recovery proceeds from those loans can be used to reinvest into new or secondary loans for the first five years of a CLO. And to frame just how powerful that is, one specific example in April of 2020, about 2% of the loan market paid off at par. It was obviously a very difficult day in the market, tremendous uncertainty in the economy. No one knew what was happening. No one was going to the offices. People were hunkered down at home. Yet 2% of loans paid off at par. And some of that was due to scheduled amortization. 
Some was previously announced M&A that was closing on those days. But if you were running a CLO and your CLOs were in the reinvestment period, you were able to take that 2% of money. You just got back at 100 cents on the dollar. And just like many things were trading at loans, were trading at very discounted prices, 80, 85 cents on the dollar. You could take your 100 cent dollars and then go buy some things at a nice discount making up for the inevitable COVID loss or COVID mistake that everyone made going into to a credit portfolio. Along the way, while uh, the loan prices dropped to about 80 cents on the dollar during COVID, and just like the S&P 500 was down a bunch and ever, pretty much everything was down perhaps other than treasuries, what, that, what the uh, stable structure of a CLO doesn't factor in the mark to market on the performing assets within a CLO. So even though loans were way, way down in price for a short period of time, frankly, no CLO that we're aware of liquidated due to the drop in price. And frankly, as best I'm aware, the vast majority kept even paying dividends to the good guys, the equity holders of the CLO. The good guys. The good guys, the, the owners, despite the marks being way, way down on those difficult days. And it's the same thing we saw back in 2008 and nine. We saw a little blip in 2015, back in 20 in 2001, with the technology bursting, bubble bursting. What the the little magic is in a CLO, as long as you're in that reinvestment period, you can keep reinvesting. The day you are reinvesting, when you're getting paydowns and things are way down, is usually the most important day to be doing this. A good analogy, frankly, to a CLO is a bank. And um, sometimes we even think of a CLO as maybe a better bank. And there's a lot of similarities and a couple of important differences. But that's the part that makes it better. Um, CLOs are about 10 times levered, give or take. Not unlike most money center banks. If you look at JP Morgan's balance sheet, they're going to be about 10 times levered, maybe a little more. Banks typically fund themselves. Banks, well, so let's start. They have management. They have two-legged people who make decisions every day, and then they go home at the end of the day. CLOs have collateral managers. They have two-legged people who make decisions to buy and sell loans, and they go home every day. We have kind of mezzanine investors at a bank that would be like their preferred stock and unsecured debt. And then banks have depositors. Now, the challenge with deposits is you can take your deposit out at any time, which if you're a depositor is very nice and very convenient. Within a CLO, all of our financing is long-term financing. So while loans are typically about seven or eight years in, in maturity on average, a CLO has typically a 12-year legal final maturity, unlike a deposit that you or I might have at our neighborhood bank, which we could just go take out this afternoon if we wanted to. The funding in a CLO is locked in. And so, those are all the upper tranches. Every tranche. Yep. Every, the, no loan can be bought into a CLO that matures after the first dollar of debt being due in a CLO. So one of the things, while we have ups and downs and twists and turns, for sure, the one thing we've never had to deal with was selling loans in a CLO if we didn't want to. As the majority investor, we can call a CLO and force a liquidation if we want. I can assure you every loan will do one of two things. It will either default or pay off at par. It's a binary outcome for every credit investment. And unlike a bank, a CLO has the wherewithal to see every loan through to the end of its life, if that's what we want to do as the equity holder of the CLO. So a lot of information there, but it's, it's really interesting. What are banks supposed to do? Lend to American companies so they can create jobs and grow the economy. Frankly, that's what CLOs do. There's never been a run on the CLO, on a CLO in the history of the CLO market, simply because cash flow CLOs don't have any sort of mark-to-market triggers for performing collateral, and they don't have any risk of short-term deposits where you're kind of borrowing at a short-term date and lending on a long-term date. That's a great formula, except when it isn't, like in March of this year. Yes, and in March of this year and throughout the year, deposits flooded out of banks, so banks you know, we're basically running out of money to fund their d distressed assets. They were distressed because of interest rates. So they wish they had a lot more money to buy. And that would have been a good investment. But unfortunately, they couldn't. So you're saying they had they put their money in CLO AAAs, they'd be getting higher coupons, and they wouldn't be underwater on a mark to market basis, which is what happened. Yeah, that is true. Cre credit has performed very well, and duration has performed very, very badly. So do CLOs have a effectively a duration of zero because they invest in exclusively floating rate loans? The loans underlying CLOs typically reset every three months, some of them every one month, some maybe every six months. 
and the CLO debt, typically the, the things a bank could buy if a banks were buying CLO triple A's or double A's, those can, those typically reset every 90 days. So you have in theory, three months of interest rate duration maximum. Now you also have spread duration in that these CLO bonds pay SOFR plus a spread, maybe SOFR plus 170 basis points or 1.7% for the triple A's. And you do have more spread duration in that if spreads widen, we're probably not going to pay off that debt anytime soon. Obviously, if spreads tighten, as us as the majority equity holder after the non-call period expires might say, hey, well, you know, 170 was nice back a couple of years ago when we issued it, but now we can issue it at 120. Let's pay off the old guys and issue some new paper. So there is some spread duration, but what we've seen is, and just like mortgages have spread duration, have have there's both rate duration and spread duration. In our case, it's just spread duration. And, and in my experience, rate duration is the far bigger uh, risk to investing in fixed income securities than spread duration. But you have that option to pay it off in the same way a, a mortgage holder, if rates you know go down a ton as they did in 2020, they can refinance. Correct. And so in our case, we don't really care about rates so much because if we refinance the old CLO AAAs with new ones, it's still going to be based off of SOFR. And then that'll keep resetting. But if the spreads on CLO AAAs tighten, I will absolutely seek to reset or refinance those tighter. Right now, we're not doing that because in most of our CLOs, the, the AAAs are well below the current market rate. So we're kind of in the money on our financing, so to speak. But roll the clock back to 2021 or 28. It was kind of refinancing mania here at Eagle Point. And we refinanced dozens of CLOs and the holders of the AAAs, you know, they said, oh, we like the old ones. You know, but unfortunately, the markets have moved and we give you first opportunity to invest in the new ones. So it's very much like a mortgage in that if rates go up, you don't have to do anything. If rates go down, you have the free option to do that. And we have the same thing within the CLO structure. And also... Majority equity, the ones who make that decision. The reason you refinanced in 2021 was not because rates themselves collapsed, but because the spread was very tight. Spreads tightened significantly then, yes. Even some of the CLOs we got, we issued in the summer of 2020, I remember we were able to, we reset those CLOs in the summer of 21, and the AAA spreads had come down a bunch. And the reason we issued in 20, in the summer of 2020, it was still uncertain times. While it seemed like the worst was behind us, no one knew for sure. We were all in uncharted waters. And we said it'd be a good idea to lock in some degree of new CLO financing. The market to get CLOs issued in the summer of 2020, as you can imagine, was difficult. And the AAA investors demanded all kinds of terms and provisions that they might not normally get. But we set up those CLOs, many of them with one-year non-call periods, such that we put little, as the market tightened and tightened and tightened, we had little reminders in our calendar, you know, 30 days prior, let's tell those people they're going to be paid off and we'll issue new paper. Um, so th- those were obviously great investments. The things we issued in 22 or 21 that we refinanced, frankly, those, the AAAs are still in the money today and that the, the spreads on AAAs today are wider than they were back in 2021. So I, I don't have the option to, to refinance my debt. However, what is happening, and you can see this in the portfolios that we list, that we, we have several that are public and are, and are SEC registrants, so you can see we provide a tremendous amount of detail. Loans also prepay very rapidly. The long-term prepayment rate on loans is about 30% per year. And this kind of lines up with broadly, and maybe there's not a lot of average numbers. Sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower. The L in CLO is also the L in LBO. It's the same leverage. We're providing leverage in many cases to KKR and Blackstone and Carlisle when they're buying companies and trying to grow them and improve them. If a, a folks like those, typically, if they own a company for more than three or four years, it might not be going according to plan, frankly. So, so what you would expect is loans are going to get repaid about in three years, even though they're seven or eight year maturities. And what we've seen in our portfolio, the underlying portfolio of loans beneath our CLOs is that the spread on the loans has been going up over the last year. And why is that? It's, you know, if a company has a 2025 maturity on their balance sheet, they might be saying, well, you know, maybe it was at 300 over. The market's open right now. The bankers say we can do it. We don't want to get close to it being due or even having less than a year of runway, lest some terrible thing happen in the market and the market shut. 
So even if they were paying 300 over SOFR, they might refinance and now pay 450 over SOFR. Good news for us, our financing spread is locked in and we have 12 years of financing. These folks, loans, which are typically shorter term, are coming back and in many cases refinancing, which is good news for us. So while we're not ripping out a lot of costs on the right side of our CLO balance sheets today, sometimes we do, right? Today is not that market. The good news is the left side of our balance sheet is coming our way with, with loans getting to be at more and more attractive levels. Hey, everyone. We're about to get back in the action. But before we do, let me give you a lowdown on what's been brewing at Blockworks. Come March next year in the heart of London, we're bringing together hundreds of the world's heavyweight asset managers. I'm talking about the big hitters, fund managers, allocators, payment providers, and the major high-frequency traders. They'll all be converging at Digital Asset Summit London, the mother of all digitally focused conferences in the institutional space. If you're curious about what the big money is up to in the digital asset scene, this is the event for you. We're diving deep into the intersection of macroeconomics and crypto, dissecting where we're at at the market cycle, and we'll be getting into the nitty gritty of real world assets. So think stable coins and on-chain treasuries. It's all in mix. I'm going to be there and so are the forward guide superstars. Michael Howell is going to be there. There's a rumor that Joseph Wang is going to be there. I don't know who started that rumor, but people are saying that. We're also getting into the minds of allocators, so you get a front row seat to what the big crypto money managers are cooking up these days. And because you're a dedicated Forward Guidance listener, here's an exclusive treat. Use code FG20 to get 20% off. Just hit that link at the end of this episode, so gear up, because I'm looking forward to seeing you in sunny London town come March. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. So you said a fair portion of the loans owned by CLOs are used to finance buyouts, leverage buyouts, private equity transactions. What What is the rough percentage breakdown, I guess, either in the broad CLO uh, world or specifically what, what your firm owns? And then what are the other, what does the other pie chart look like? You know, if, if X percentage of the loans are originated in order to finance buy, what percentage of them are syndicated loans? What percentage, maybe a smaller percentage are actively sold by banks to sort of de-risk their balance sheets? How does that breakdown play out? We believe we're the largest holder of CLO equity in the world. So we have a market basket. We were the majority investor, I believe, in over 100 different CLOs across the firm here at Eagle Point. The majority of loans are to finance leverage buyouts. Any given CLO may be a little higher or lower, but if I had to guess, it's probably between 60 and 65%, but that's a, that's a guess. And it's not a number we track actively. Nearly all of these loans are syndicated loans, though, which is important. When banks call up or a private equity sponsor calls a bank, hey, we're thinking of buying company X, it's going to be $4 billion. We'd like to put a billion and a half down and borrow two and a half billion. The banks will do that and, and they'll say, okay, we'll take 50 million ourselves, and then we'll, we'll be able to sell the rest to to investors, including CLOs. And CLOs are the largest holder of loans today. And that's been the case certainly for as long as I can remember. The other loans are, there are some public companies. There's you know a handful of public companies here. We talked about even like American Airlines is a borrower. They're a public company. So it's just using that as a flexible piece of capital in their capital structure. Unlike many bonds, which will have a fixed rate bonds might have a longer non-call period loans, a strength and a weakness of them is they can usually be repaid in as soon as six months if, if a borrower would like. So depending on if it's a company in transition or if they're not sure, um, you know, right now they might be wanting to take out a loan because they think interest rates are going down. It probably would have been better to take out a bond a year or two ago. You know, some of the companies still got one and 2% bonds. Those obviously are great for them, bad for the holders. But public companies as well use CLO debt, maybe 20 or use loans, maybe 20% of the loan universe, give or take, are publicly reporting entities. Thanks. So I, I think of banks, CLOs, and then CDOs kind of as a, a Venn diagram where CLOs own a similar amount of assets, similar type of assets to banks, but it is a different structure and a structure that, that you, you so far you've argued is preferable in, in, in many ways. Let's compare CLOs, collateralized loan obligations, to their cousin collateralized debt obligations, which had a, a severe period of stress during the, the great financial crisis. Are this is, it, is this, are the structures very similar? Exactly the similar? It's just it, it owns a, a different period, different types of, of assets. The structure across all securitizations is actually pretty similar, just as if 
Toyota or Tesla want to securitize their prime auto loans or auto leases, you put all the assets in a box. Sometimes it's in Delaware. Sometimes it's in the Cayman Islands. It's all bankruptcy remote. So all of those things, and just like Ginny and Freddie and Fannie, frankly, you know, put all their assets, their, their, each securitization is a specific company or a special purpose company. The difference of a CLO is that they have reinvestment periods, which like auto securitizations and mortgage securitizations typically don't. So the structure relatively similar. The difference, though, is garbage in, garbage out. We haven't quite figured out how to take a structure where you take bad assets and through tranching, they become good assets. We're working on it, but I think that's that's probably a ways down the, the, the pipeline. And the challenge is is really exactly what you just said, Jack. When there's a housing bubble in the country, it doesn't matter if your you know your loan is in you know Connecticut or in California or or you know anywhere in the country. The vast majority of the largest metropolitan statistical areas MSAs had significant house price depreciation during that time frame, and what many of the CDOs owned were junior pieces of mortgage securitizations. So they were taking the bottom or near the bottom of a mortgage pool. So they might have that more that mortgage securitization might have had 10,000 mortgages in it. And the CDO was buying the very junior or second to the bottom part of that pool of mortgages. So even if a few mortgages went bad, the investments they would hold would start going to zero. And then issuing triple A debt on top of that Correct. because it was diversified. So, you know, a triple B becomes triple A. Well, the top part of a pool of triple B's becomes triple A. The difference with a CLO is we own first lien senior secured corporate loans. And we own, you know, loans all around the world or all around the country with operations all around the world, even like Hilton, obviously, has hotels, you know, in England and France and, you know, lots of different places in Australia. They're American companies issuing debt in dollars, but with, with worldwide operations. But that was why one of the things I, I said really at the outset is the syndicated loan market over three decades has had just a tremendous, tremendous, consistent, positive return. We've had the Russia crisis in 98. What do you know? We've had Russia again come up. You know, we had, you know, the telecom bubble augmented with terrorism terribly in 2001. We've had 2008 and 2009 happen. We've had COVID happen. And the loan market just keeps chugging away. The vast majority of American companies pay their bills, even if they're low rated. And being in that being in that position is great. Even in the depths of COVID, some companies forget about no EBITDA or profit. Some companies had no revenue for a period of time, but they didn't all just hand over the keys and default and go away. You know, they laid off staff for a period of time or furloughed staff or, you know, shed some leases or did whatever they needed to do to keep going. And while the default rate certainly picked up a little bit in 2020, as, as you'd expect, by and large, you know, the vast majority of companies kept, kept current on their debt. And so what we've seen is that strong performance really across many, many cycles. And so it's, it's not a, let's hope it's different this time. As long as it's remarkably, reasonably similar to the last 30 years, we'll be very happy. So I think you said, talked about the, the reinvestment period. And I think CLOs actually performed, with the benefit of hindsight, performed well in 2008 and specifically coming out of 2009, 2010. When you say reinvestment period, is, is that broadly simplified that the liabilities are longer length than the assets, what we talked about earlier. So you're generating cash to buy assets at below par prices, you know, to distressed prices. You said CDOs. In some cases they did, in some cases they didn't. Some were static, some were reinvesting. The difference there is pretty much all of the underlying collateral just traded to zero and never came back versus loans. While in 2008 and nine loans traded to 60 or 70 cents on the dollar, the maximum default rate during that time frame was about the trailing 12-month default rate peaked at around 11%. And this is one of the things that you know, kind of helps us to some degree in that, by definition, credit people are negative people. You know, negative Nancys, sometimes people will say, or, or, or things like that. You're, you're, the glass is you know, half empty for sure. In our opinion, the rumor is worse than the news in credit markets. And 
when we're, when investors, credit investors are looking into uncertain times, and certainly 2008 was an uncertain time, 2020 was an uncertain time. I've never met with a credit manager who's, oh, everything's going to be great. I'm sure it'll all work out. Even in 2005 and six, that was that was not a very pessimistic time. No, well, it's, it's interesting. So in our opinion, some of the best CLOs, or not our opinion, based on the data we have available, and we have rich, rich data sets of the 500 plus cash flow CLOs created prior to the financial crisis, the best CLO equity was from the 2006-2007 vintage. And if you think back to those days, we had some of the greatest hits, I mean that sarcastically, of the credit market. Companies like Tribune and TXU. I mean, if, if you go back to, you know, if you go back to the, the, the loan origination back in 06 and 07, they were some pretty tough vintages. Against that, the median, this is judgmental, the, like if you were to look at a pitch book from a CLO and find it a blue book buried in someone's office or a file cabinet from 2007, it probably said, hey, the equity base case is about 14% in 2007. Like our IRR assumptions? IRR, yes. Now, no one modeled a financial crisis or all the things that, that transpired. The median CLO from that 2007 vintage returned about 18% IRR, not because they had the best loans. They had some of the worst loans but they had the ability to keep reinvesting when few others did. And they had financing locked in that was super cheap. And to frame it, while we talked about loans prepaying on average 30%, obviously in times of distress, prepayment slows significantly. No one was, you know, no CFO came in and said, hey, why don't we pay down our debt today? Just like no one did that in 20, April 2020, yet we still got 2% pay downs. Between 2008 and 2009, the prepayment rate slowed to an average of 12%. So that's about one-third the long-term average. But over those two years, that means you got 24% of your money back at par. When you could go reinvest at 60, 70, 80 cents on the dollar. Far better than anything else you could do, frankly. And the way a CLO works, this is an important piece of the puzzle. There's the trustee and all CLOs have a third-party trustee, a bank or custodian, you know, Citibank does as well as Fargo, folks like that, you know, Bank of New York, you know, collect all the money on the loans. And they put the money in two accounts. One is interest, goes in the interest account, and principal goes in the principal account. And all the paydowns and early amortizations, and if there's a recovery on a default, that money goes in the principal account, and the CLO collateral manager looks at what's in the account each day. And hopefully, if they're doing a good job, they'll get that money invested promptly in the best loans available, which sometimes might be new issue. In days like 2009, it was buying in the secondary market. Interest, on the other hand, goes into that interest call, into the interest account. And every single quarter, absent one particular test not being in compliance, what the um, trustee does is pay out the interest to the AAAs and AA's all the way down, and then pays the leftover cash to the equity. So there's no concept on in normal operations of retained earnings within a CLO like there is in a bank. And what that means for CLO equity is we get on average about 25% cash on cash on our investments each year through this interest waterfall. Now, if there's too many loans that default or way too many triple Cs, there are some scenarios where cash flows could be diverted for a period of time, either to buy new loans or repay the, the debt using interest to pay repay principal on the CLO debt. But that's a very unusual occurrence and rarely happens, even during the depths of the financial crisis and COVID. It certainly picked up then, but many CLOs never failed that test. And these protective tests are very important. The price of performing collateral really is not an input. So if you bought a loan at par, as long as it's still performing, even if it's at 70, doesn't impact the test. And the tests only matter four minutes of the year. Wait, and sorry, this, this test is the one test where if it passes, the excess earnings go to the equity holder. Exactly. And if you fail it, the consequences either, depending on how badly you're failing it, maybe you go to buy more loans, or if you're failing it even more, then you repay the, the AAA holder at par, which is probably not the thing you want to do on that day. But what's important, while you can measure the test every day, you can measure it continuously, the tests only matter four minutes of the year at 5 p.m. once a quarter on the determination date. And the trustee, that bank comes in and looks at, you know, I'll calculate what the ratio is. And if it passes, we'll pay the equity their dividend. And if it fails, then we'll, we'll follow the, the alternative test. There's, first off, there's never a requirement to sell a loan out of a CLO. So that's very important, even if the marks are down or you're failing this OC test. And if you're the person running a CLO, the collateral manager, 
you know on you know June or July 7th, that test is going to be calculated at 5 p.m. You've got 90 days to make sure your tests are in order. So it's not a surprise or anything like that. And even during the depths of COVID, to the best of my recollection, the vast majority of CLOs kept paying distributions to the equity, even though it was very uncertain times. So getting all that cash out, again, to the good guys, as we like to think of it, is very, very important. And for our uh, public portfolios for CLO equity, we publish the cash on cash that we get on an investment by investment basis. And um, one of the best ways to de-risk an investment certainly is getting a lot of cash flow very early on in the life of it. And CLO equity is something that does that far better than far better than I think people appreciate. And we say 25% cash on cash return. I, I know your, your public vehicle you know, now has a dividend in the high teens could, could be could be 20%. What, what do you mean cash on cash return? I'm just talking about the underlying CLO investment. So this is before any costs or fees in the public vehicle or the impact of leverage in the public vehicle. Just if if you and like if you were to look at our portfolio, the value of our portfolio, I'm going to use the numbers 100. That would suggest that in the course of a year, we're going to get about $25 of payments in cash payments related to that investment portfolio. So if you went out and said, I'm going to buy this portfolio today, $100. If our, our base case, and certainly if you look historically what we've done, um, you'll typically get about 25% back each year in cash. Some years are a little better. Some years are a little worse. I don't think we've been below 20% per year since, since we ramped up. There's always a little bit of lag as you're building out a portfolio. And once or twice, perhaps we've been above 30 even. So because there's no lend like a bank where there's retained earnings, where the bank wants to grow capital so they can do you know bigger things and the executives get bigger bonuses and so on and so forth. Within a CLO, all the money just gets paid out much better in our opinion. Okay, that makes sense. So earlier you said that often, because credit folks tend to be pessimistic, the rumors, you know, the news is, is worth it than the reality. Tell us, do you think that that's uh, applicable today? Whereas there's, you know, for over a year now been, you know, uh, many forecasts of a recession where credit would perform poorly. What are you seeing now on the defaults credit credit stress right now? And sort of how does that compare to the, I guess, implied default rate from loan yields, loan spreads? Sure. Yeah. So the average the loan index is probably around 96 cents on the dollar. It, mo- it moves around a little bit. That would suggest if you use a to make it simple, a 50% recovery on loans, which is below the long-term average, that would suggest the market's predicting 8% of loans will default, 50% recovery, and you get your coupon for everyone else and your money back as a general cuff. I mean, there's a, a lot more precise uh, calculations to that, but if you're just- And, and recovery rate is how much you get back of a defaulted loan. Correct. Yeah. And the average recovery is higher than 50. Some recoveries lately have been below 50. In my experience, there's very rarely an average recovery. Either you get nearly all your money back or you get very little, but the average is somewhere somewhere north of 50 as a general rule. It may be different next time, but I mean, high yield bonds, which are over the last 20 plus years on average, I think have recovered around 50 cents on the dollar. So we're secured. So in general, I use that as a rough assumption just to make the math easy. Against that, if you look at data from LCD, which is one of the kind of the record keepers of the market in terms of the loan market and defaults, there were actually no companies that defaulted in September this year. And the trailing 12-month default rate is a little less than 1.5% based on the last numbers I saw. That compares very favorably to the long-term default rate, which is between 25 and 3%. So when you look, one of the things we talked about as a positive for loans, and it's unambiguously been a positive, is that they're floating rate. And the good news for CLO debt investors and CLO equity investors we're getting all this extra interest in, that's tremendous. We love it. Versus if we had fixed rate, we'd be, you know, we'd be crying. Now, the bad news is someone has to pay that, and that's those companies on the other side. Yeah. And so with that, there's there's a couple of things going on. Companies, when loans are underwritten, have ample debt service coverage cushion. When you look at, and I'll compare that to commercial real estate, like in commercial real estate, if you were to look at like a class A office building, it might be underwritten to a 1.3 or 1.4 debt service coverage ratio, meaning kind of the free cash flow from the building before paying the mortgage, the the, the estimated profits pre-mortgage would be like 1.3 times the mortgage payment. Average company two years ago, now it's come down, was between four and five times coverage. So significantly greater coverage. Than a, than a typical commercial mortgage. 
And even like if you were to go apply for a mortgage yourself at the bank, the bank typically wants to see about a debt to income ratio of about 30%, which means you as a two-legged going in to get a mortgage for a new house would need about a three times debt service coverage ratio, just to kind of put all these things in perspective. They're quoted a little differently, but it's all measuring the same thing. What's your income to what what you got to uh, what you have to pay each month? Now, with rising rates, the the denominator part of that debt service coverage ratio has gone up a bunch. Now, the good news to some degree with all of this inflation that's been going on in the world, on average, and this is according to to data published by LCD again, on average, the top line and bottom and bottom line of companies or of EBITDA and top line are growing still. Well, admittedly, it's growing at a declining rate. They're still, on average, growing. So that goes a long way. Companies have a good bit of power. That in all this inflation we talk about, that means companies have pricing power and they're pushing while they're facing higher costs. They're also able to push those higher costs through to their customers. Very rarely does an owner of a company, if they're growing the top line and bottom line, choose to default on their debt. And so while companies still have plenty of debt service coverage, it's in, uh, on average, it's less than it was a year or two ago because of these rising rates. Now, some companies have hedged. I've seen numbers judgmentally from others that about one third of companies or one third of floating rate interest has been hedged. I don't think that means some one third have hedged all. It probably means two thirds have hedged half or something like that. But more importantly, if you're the CFO of a company and you're $1 short, you know, you know your interest payment, you don't call up the board of directors and say, oh, sorry, we're going to hand in the keys to the lenders because we're $1 short on interest. You're going to slow pay your payables. You're going to you know, lay off some people. Not that we like to see that happen, but you'll sell your overseas division or you'll call some mercenary investor. You know, We need preferred capital. We'll pay a 12% or something like that. If you've got a growing business and a good business, you're going to look under every sofa cushion, you know, and every rug and, you know, call your rich uncle and do whatever you need to do to keep that going. And so while debt service coverage has definitely gotten tighter with the interest rates going up, it's not the kind of thing where if you're $1 short, you hand over the keys. Whereas that does happen in commercial real estate and then banks are you know, le- left with the property or can be left with the property. So is it 0% or close to 0% of CLOs are invested in commercial real estate? Is that true? Syndicated loan cash flow CLOs invest in small pieces of big loans to big American companies. Now, there can be some, probably a handful of real estate related companies in there, but we're not making mortgages on buildings. So, you know, every company we deal with touches real estate in some area, whether they lease an office or own their building or something, but the real estate exposure is, is generally quite low position in the capital stack is not on a particular building. It is in the ent- corporate entity. Correct. Let's have, I'm sure some come, I'm sure like we lend to American Airlines. I, I, I don't know this. Let's, let's say they own their headquarters. They're not going to walk away from headquarters would be my expectation. But if you were a, a, a for-profit landlord renting your building out to others, if you have a loan maturing, if your mortgage matures this month, you know, you probably had a 4% mortgage. Call up your friendly banker. Oh, then you know, here's the rates today. They're eight percent. Well, bad news if you signed a 20-year office lease, you know, your rates go up, you know, two percent, your rents go up two percent a year, and all of a sudden your financing cost doubles. You might not, you might have to put money into the deal to continue to to finance it, which might mean your equity is wiped out. In a company, there's far more moving parts. And and that's something companies are by no means static, they're living, breathing things. And, and watching, making the, the basic analogy of, well, if rates go up X percent, companies will start to default, I think is a fallacy. Many of the few defaults we've had this year are like good old fashioned defaults. The business didn't work. One interesting one is a company called Envision Healthcare. When this was, you know, a LBO from a big household name sponsor, it had leverage. I don't think it was unduly levered relative to the market. Obviously, less leverage probably would have been better because they defaulted. But they did kind of two things. They they had were involved in optional elective surgeries, which you know during COVID, you know you you know you know if your leg broke, you went to the hospital. But other than that, you you weren't optionally going to get anything done. So that part of the business dried up. And then they also provided some services which became subject of the Surprise Billing Act, 
which like, you know, sometimes you go to the hospital, you think it's in network, but that one specialist isn't in the bill is $10,000. So they got caught both of their businesses. Those are the two things. They weren't necessarily surprise billers, but they did have a lot of exposure to that space. That's a good old fashioned default. Doesn't matter what rates are. They're going to, you know, that company can't, you know, both of their business lines got hit. Okay. That's, you know, we don't like it. We were an indirect lender through our CLOs, but that's going to happen some of the time but nothing to do with rates or leverage or anything like that. It's just, you know, sometimes it doesn't work for a business. And by and large, when I look at the, the I think it's 1.3% of the market that's defaulted this year, it's stuff like that that's a pretty consistent theme. If we have a recession, how do you think the CLO equity asset class will perform? You know, I have in my mind a vision of how banks will perform and how bank stocks will perform, obviously, based on, you know, where the recession is, default rates, all sorts of things. But you know, how does how how does your world handle a recession? Sure. So let's say we have a 01 style recession, not a crisis type spike, but just a you know a one to two year period of elevated defaults. What I would expect is default rates default rates would increase on loans a couple of percent. Maybe they get to three, four, five percent, something like that. The price of loans will invariably fall. It's hard to see a scenario where 5% of corporate America is defaulting each year and loans are trading at par. If it's 5% defaults, there'll be someone on some television network or some podcast where they're saying, oh my God, defaults are 5%. They're going to 10. You know, the sky is falling. I went to 10% in 2008. It's going to happen again or 11%. So I think the price of loans will fall probably to the 80s and, what, and prepayments on loans will slow. Now, if your CLO is outside the reinvestment period, you're kind of getting hit with those defaults, but you're not able to reinvest. If you're in the reinvestment period, I think you'll be able to create a lot of value. Now, the drawback, let's say I'm right, and then everything works itself out in two years and we get back to life as usual. I think we'll be in a better place owning CLO equity at the end of that period than you were at the beginning. We saw this, like if you look at the financial returns on our public fund on ECC, from January of 2020 before COVID through or December 2019 to December 2021, I think you'll see a very positive period of performance in total. But sadly, it wasn't a straight line between those periods. And you could see assets, uh, you'll see many financial assets marked down. You'll see, I'd expect you'll see the S&P 500 down, you know, five to 20%. You'll see the price of CLO securities down in that time frame. In my opinion, the market underestimates the value of the reinvestment period in a CLO. And people are, oh, there's a lot of fear of the sky is falling. It's great to have a steady hand to be able to reinvest your par paydowns when everyone else thinks the sky is falling. Yeah. And and banks don't have that or they cannot have that because of uh, deposits. Because you and I might be, there's going to be a headline of the next bank and they're going to be worried about liquidity and certainly de-risking. Banks are also facing higher capital charges in general. The, the, the impact of Basel III, which seems like it's likely to be rolled out here very soon, is just going to put more and more um, pressure on banks to be less levered and have more capital. If you listen to some of the comments from some of the more left-leaning folks at the Senate Banking Committee last week, you think banks would have to be you know, fully equitized with no deposits whatsoever. Obviously, that's, that's, that's a bit of an extreme but it's hard to see a scenario where banks are aggressively lending in, in those days. They're going to be pulling back and retrenching. And frankly, one of the things we're seeing banks do now, they know they're going to need more. Most banks will need more capital in some way, shape or form. Banks are actually tapping a market very similar to the CLO market called the regulatory capital relief market. These are called RCR transactions. And what this is, if you're the CEO and CFO at a bank, you're probably meeting with your board. You're looking, you're kind of, someone ran out these Basel III models. Oh my goodness, we're going to need, you know, X billion or zillion dollars more capital. What are we going to do? Should we go out and raise stock? CFO says, oh, no, 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 that's a very, very bad idea. Well, what else can we do? And so what banks have, a number of large banks in the US and overseas have identified ways to sell via private securitization the risk on different portfolios of their loans. Insurance kind of. Basically, yes. So they still own the loan. If you're the customer and you still, you don't know any of this is happening behind the scenes. And hopefully the people at the bank don't treat it any differently, whether they 
it bought insurance on it or not. And they always keep a piece of the puzzle, keep a piece of the pie themselves. There's never a situation in these things where the bank sells all the risk. They'll covenant to keep a piece themselves. So they still have skin in the game. They're able to get capital relief. And in many cases, they're paying investors 15 plus percent returns on these pools where you can look, you can see highly granular how the bank's portfolio was done over the last 20 or 30 years. In the case of corporate loans, a lot of the banks say just how long the, the borrowers have been customers of the bank. There was one investment we were looking at and quite a few customers had been borrowers from the bank for 20 years. That's great to see. The banks obviously know how these companies will behave and perform, but they know they're gonna need more capital at the banks, but rather than go sell stock with many banks trading at a discount to book, diluting shareholders, they're finding private ways to raise this capital without going to the public markets. And frankly, in September of this year, the phone was lighting up. One of our portfolio managers, who's the, the lead face to the street for these uh, regulatory capital relief transactions, he had more opportunities in front of him than you know, we could handle. Frankly, we've we got to triage them. And okay, there's, there's a long list of opportunities here. Let's pick our favorite five and kind of focus on them. Um, it, was, it was interesting to see just how much capital banks were looking to raise at quarter end. Great opportunities for us. Very interesting. I, I didn't know of, of this market before our conversation. So the banks are basically buying insurance from you or another uh, bank who's selling this contract. And it's a, I think you said it's a um, credit linked note, but is the yeah. structure similar to the credit default swap? Uh, very uh, similar to that, yeah. So you actually, so... Let's say the bank has a billion dollars of auto loans they want to buy protection on. They might say to someone, all right, we'll keep 200 million, a 200 million slice of everything for ourselves. And then of the other eight, so they're skin in the game. They care about every loan. And then here's how our auto loan portfolio has done over the last 25 years. We're pretty good at doing this. And then you, Mr. Investor, why don't you put up the bottom 5% of that 800, so put up $40 million of cash. And if there's problems with that portfolio, we can chip away at your cash. And depending on the portfolio, assuming they're prime autos, you'll have very, very little, historically very little credit expense. Obviously the future, no one knows for sure, um, but you can see the banks have tons and tons of data with how their investments have, or how their loans have performed. And in exchange for that, they might pay us a 15% interest rate. So 15% sounds good, but as you say, banks have the data wouldn't there be an adverse selection issue where the good loans, you know, they're not going to sell that risk to you. They're going to sell you maybe the subprime loans or, or well, you, know, you obviously see the fight. And in the case of auto loans, you see the FICO scores of the borrowers. Yep. So the mitigant, that's a very good question. And it took me a long time to get over this, frankly. I always assumed these transactions were run by the risk manager, the, the chief risk officer at the bank. And they said, oh, we've got some investors we could lay some risk off to. What do we want to sell today? And that you know, he or she would look in the files, oh man, these are the ones we really want to let go of. The reality is these programs are run by the CFOs of the banks, not the chief risk officers. And the CFOs view this as a just-in-time way to raise capital without going to the equity market. And one of the things as we started doing diligence on this, on this opportunity set, and we've been looking at it for years before we actually put a dollar to capital to work, is what I found is actually the opposite in that the pools the banks sell actually outperform their own portfolios. I don't remember one investment we're involved in in this space where the bank's on balance sheet portfolio didn't underperform what they sold to investors. So they kind of keep it as clean as possible. There will be problems for sure, but in general, this is viewed as a, a capital channel that banks want to respect, very different than a risk management tool that they want to use to lay off risk. So that's an important fact. And they have skin in the game. Every single, every single one of these that I can recall that we're invested in, there's always a vertical slice. So the banks are in every single piece. In some cases, in autos, and I, I used autos just as an example, because that's something listeners might understand well. Also, corporate loans, get this, trade finance receivables, um, you may, any type of asset that the bank has a large pool of, they'll do this on. On autos, sometimes the bank will actually keep the bottom half percent or 1% for themselves as a way to have the first buffer against investors, but they still get enough capital relief, even if we're the, instead of the zero to five at the bottom, 
maybe we're the one to five where the bank takes the first 1% as well. So there's a, there's a good alignment with it, but it took me a long time to get over the question, probably a decade, frankly, to get over the question you just asked. And it was looking at tons and tons of data and behavior that got me comfortable with that. So it's a regulatory capital relief. So they're not actually, they're raising capital, but they're not getting cash in the door. They're, they're paying cash out the door. To- you actually get the cash. So like in that example, if we put up the bottom 5% on the 800 million, we have to send them a check for $40 million that sits in the bank. Okay, okay. Um, and But they have to pay us, you know, instead of 5% interest, whatever you might get, or 4% interest, they pay us 15% interest, but it's credit linked. It's not how does the bank doing, it's how is that specific portfolio doing? And if you have auto loans, in that case, stop doing well, they could say, we don't owe you 50 at the end, we might only owe you 40 at the end. And how, how is the credit linked to the corporate entity? For example, you know, not saying that you did this, but or not as, let's say, hypothetically, you know, some, let's say I give, had given regulatory capital relief to Silicon Valley Bank against loans that were good and still, still were good, but Silicon Valley Bank failed. It's now bought by JP Morgan. What happens there? Yep. So well, Silicon Valley Bank was bought by a different bank, right. Morgan. To the best of my knowledge, neither of those banks were involved, had, had participated in this program, but they could have been, and I just wasn't aware. But I don't believe they were. You, you hit a very interesting point. You're a depositor of the bank in that case. So one of the things, so in each of those cases, obviously the depositors were, were made whole in both of those situations. So depending on the exact structure of the investment, if you have a deposit, you'd be covered. If you had a, just an unsecured note, which some of these are set up as, you, your investment could be in jeopardy. And if we were not heavily or substantively involved in any of those matters, so I forget, certainly the stockholders were wiped out, the preferred stockholders were wiped out, the depositors were all paid in full, what shook out with the, the bonds in between, not entirely, I, I don't... Uh, recall the exact specifics on each one of those, and it has varied over time. One of the things we look at, frankly, is, but a point you raise is interesting. Where are you depositing this money? That might, I mean, maybe that's the bigger risk than the auto loans today. I, 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 I say that only joking, half jokingly. Well, I mean, we've been about this year, the deposit risk was much, definitely much greater, although the government did. Yeah. The nice thing though, is we can look at the credit default swaps on these banks and I won't name the bank, but there's one bank that we think will be the last large bank standing in the United States if things get ugly. You know, one and so a measure we look at when we go to our investment committee is that the team shows the last 10 plus years of credit default swaps on the bank we're looking at doing the business with. And then they show the current level, you know, obviously a long history. We look at the stock price, we look at the price to book. And then we also look at where that super duper money center bank is trading. And I look at the comparison and there are some cases where a stock might be, might be trading at 70 cents a book, but the CDS trades right on top of some of the, what most would consider some of the safest banks in the country today. So what that says is that's nah, probably not the best equity story, but the likelihood of bank failure is quite low. We haven't put any hedges on for this. One of the things we looked at one transaction and one member of our committee said, well, I'm not so sure I like this counterparty. But their, their CDS was trading at the same level, the bank the credit default swap on the bank itself was trading at the same level as this giant money center bank that we, we think will be the last, last man standing if, if, if it ever got to that. You know, in theory, we could, we could buy protection on the bank we didn't like and sell protection on that other bank. And if our theory was correct, even though we really deposited the money with Bank X, we're really facing this other bank. We haven't done that yet. But those are the kind of technology. And, and while it sounds quite complicated, the reality is for, for experts like our traders, that's, it's, you know, that's one phone call and we can get that kind of stuff done. So we haven't done it, but you hit on a very interesting point. You are taking bank risk, which in a CLO, while there's a bank who's the custodian, they're just holding the money in trust and the assets in trust in a segregated deposit account. In none of these bank failures that we talked about, did the depositors not get their money back? Needless to say, most of that regulatory capital relief that you do at Eagle Point is in the private fund, not the publicly traded vehicle. It goes into a handful of different uh, pockets and portfolios here. But you can you can see all of the, the public funds list their portfolios every single quarter. So you can see everything that's in there. 
Got it. Got it. Thanks. All right. N- now let's move on to private credit. You know, as some are saying, it's the biggest bubble in the world. Others are saying it's the golden age. Which is it, Tom? Perhaps a little of both. Maybe everyone can be right. How about that? The, the amount of capital going into private credit is certainly increasing. That's a hard to dispute that fact. Yeah, I hear numbers sometimes of over a trillion dollars and gigantic or half a trillion dollars, whatever, huge, huge sums of money. It's not coming from zero. It's not as if this world didn't exist two years ago and now there's a trillion dollars, let's say, coming after the space. It's certainly increasing, but the, the types of firms that are involved in the space, certainly the largest ones by and large have been lending money for 10, 20, 30 years in this space. So at minimum, there's some gray hair involved, which most of the time is good. Not always, but most of the time is good. And what this typically means, what does private credit even mean? These loans I was talking about, they're, you know, they're in many cases to private companies and you or I, or just the average investor, can't call up a bank, hey, I'd like to buy you know, $10,000 of the American Airlines loan. Like, oh, well, sorry, it's you know minimum, minimum million dollars and you've got to be a qualified purchaser and all this stuff. What these are, are what used to be called middle market credit, loans to medium-sized companies in the United States. That could be companies with 50 million of revenue, 250 million of revenue. And as these private funds have gotten bigger, maybe even companies with a billion dollars of revenue all of a sudden. So they're moving up in scale as as a general rule. Is that good or bad? I don't know. It it could cut both ways. What we'll see of private credit lenders is they typically lend at a higher rate or a higher spread than the syndicated loan market, probably one to 2% wider. So if a syndicated loan is SOFR plus 400, a private credit loan might be SOFR plus 600. So 11.5%. Something like, oh yeah, not 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 you know, not not too bad of a return, frankly. Now that's before there's any defaults taken into account, and no matter how good these folks are, in many cases there's going to be a few problems that pop up. If certainly if the recession that we talked about happens, plays out. Something I like about it first, a little little thing, private credit has has refinanced a couple of loans in the syndicated market that are CLOs owned, that were getting pretty. Cuspy. Some that were even triple C rated. One one recent one is a company, a software company called Mysis. They were triple C. There was another company called Triple C Industries, even. They were rated B3, but nevertheless, they were probably on the way to triple C. Both of those loans paid off at par because the private credit funds refinanced their loans. So from a CLO perspective, like you can, you know, we wish those companies well and their new lenders the best of luck, and we're happy to take our par dollars back. So for helping the syndicated CLO market, those guys have actually been our friends. So we, we kind of, we, we, we like seeing that happen. What's helpful is similar to a CLO, these private credit funds are all long-term funds. The, the two types of funds are either BDCs, business development companies. These are permanent capital vehicles that trade on the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. They're not hedge funds. They're not short-term funds or using repo financing or things like that or their private equity style funds targeted for investing in credit, but again, with no right of redemption for the investor. And what causes bubbles to burst, you know, in, in my opinion, is typically like in the mortgage market, you know, there were liars loans and all these things, you know, you know, people who have W-2 wages, you know, shouldn't be getting million dollar houses with not documenting their income, just, you know, stuff like that snuck into the system. None of that exists here. So you don't have the like the really, really, they might be more exotic credits and they might have a little bit more of a rough ride, but it's not many of like the, you know, picture the big short or something like that. It's, it's nothing anywhere near that. And then B, the, these funds can see every credit through. Just like I said earlier, every loan will either default or pay off at par. And these funds are set up with steady hands so that they can work the company through if it does hit tough times. One of the things I don't like about the syndicated loan market, I like and I don't like, or it's it's a blessing and a curse, the loans trade and they're marked. And we talked about loans trading at 80 cents on the dollar in, in 2020. Now they're much higher. But if you bought a loan at par, great. You know, you had the best of hopes. It seemed like a great loan. It was a great interest rate. If that loan trades down to 50 and maybe a distressed fund buys some now in the secondary market, for that investor, if the person who bought it at 50, if he can force a bankruptcy and get out at 75, he's thrilled. He just made 50% on his money. The investor who bought it at 100 now just lost 25% of their money. 
So sometimes in the syndicated market, you have people starting at different points and the same outcome for one was great. If we made 50% on your money, you'd be thrilled, Jack. If you lost a quarter of your money, you'd probably be less thrilled. In this, in this private credit world, they're all starting at the same point, which is great. And they've all got a steady hand to see things through. So while will there be some excesses, perhaps, is it anywhere near as bad as the headlines suggest? In my opinion, no. And we do secretly appreciate how they're helping out the CLO market as well. So they're secretly helping out the CLO market by refinancing companies that are a little shaky. So, you know, they they are what what is an issue to them they they get the CLO's problems basically. That's their right. Great. Well, I could give them a list of five other names I'd like them to refinance, so. Yeah. Uh, and and maybe they will. Okay. So so you, your point about oh, they're not you know doing it to the the liars loans of the great financial crisis. Good point about the assets, but I think also it's a, it's the liabilities of they have long-term liabilities. And I think really what started the, the the great financial crisis was actually, you know, those repo financing at the at the Bear Stearns at, at Lehman. Exactly. So, but but some of the funds are 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 levered. BDCs. In many cases, are BDCs. Yeah. Are those? How does that leverage work? Answers vary based on the BDC. BDCs are are reg, are, are are RICs issued under the Forty Act that make a special BDC election, the Investment Company Act of nineteen forty. BDCs are allowed to have a certain degree of leverage, but it's limited by law as to how much they can have. And they need to have what's called a 150% asset coverage ratio for their debt. So if they have $100 of debt, they need to have $150 of assets or more. And if they don't, if their assets get marked down due to losses, then they can't pay, they can't declare any more dividends and they can't take on any more indebtedness. So one of the nice things is we've studied the 40 Act and there's funds under the 40 Act that are not RICs, like mutual funds, like Fidelity Magellan Fund is issued as a 40 Act fund, or PIMCO Total Return Fund, or um, Eagle Point Credit Company is a total is a, is a, a 40 Act company. As best we are aware, and we've studied this left, right, and center, and asked the, you know, the, most, the most seasoned lawyers we could find, we are only aware of, because of the strict leverage limits that the 40 Act puts on 40 Act companies, we're only aware of two 40 act companies that have ever defaulted. And in both of those cases, it was 100% recovery to the creditors. So that's 83 years, as best we're aware, of zero loss. To the creditors. Whereas if someone said, oh, I'm investing in this BDC or in this private credit fund, they, they are not senior. They're, they, they're, they're, they, they're junior and they're, they're, they're the owners and there's risks and uncertainties in owning things. And to the extent credit defaults pick up, they could see their investment reduced, but it probably doesn't go. If every creditor gets paid in full, it's probably not that that's the last marginal dollar and there's nothing left over for the equity. To my recollection, in even those two cases, there was some some residual value left over for the equity. I have to check the notes to be 100% sure. But what the, the big point is, is much of the leverage, some of the largest BDCs can issue five or 10 year notes in the market. And so they have reasonably long-term financing. Some may use shorter-term financing as well, but the vast majority of their financing is typically longer term. And by operation of law, they can't take on too much leverage. And that's something that's been, and if they go off sides on that asset coverage ratio, it's a very elegant solution. If you have margin from your broker, let's say, you know, interactive brokers or Fidelity, you have margin, you know, they call you up, Mr. Farley, you know, you need to send in money today or else we're selling your stuff tomorrow. That doesn't typically exist in traditional 40 Act financing or BDC financing. But the consequence of not being able to declare new dividends to your shareholders is very, your shareholders will not be happy on that day. Yeah, for BDC, I mean, that's why they buy it pretty much. <laughs> correct. Exactly. But you're not forced to sell. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's unlike margin financing or repo financing, you know, there's no favors, no waivers, you know, send in the money or else having to not declare new dividends is really, really bad, but it's not as bad as being stopped out of a trade that you can't otherwise hold. So, so it's, it's been a really elegant solution in different funds that we manage here at Eagle Point. We actually invest in debt issued by 40 Act companies. We think it's a fascinating investment. We think, we think the, while there's risks and anything, we think the, the, the returns are able to get relative to the risks lending to these companies and vehicles, frankly, is far outweigh, far, the returns far outweigh the risk you're actually taking. But as a shareholder of a BDC, you can look with a high degree of confidence that by and large, they have long-term financing. The flip side, 
in 20 in spring of 2020 a number of them had to do dilutive rights offerings and other things to kind of stabilize the ship some of the advisors put in a little money the external managers of the bdcs and while that's all credit positive for us if we're a lender to the bdcs it might have been dilutive to some of the equity but you still got to live to fight another day even if you were diluted a little bit you'd rather be diluted than wiped out so we think bdc credit is an excellent investment the the jury's still out on the total return in my opinion on bdc equity but it is certainly a pretty good time to be lending and we've got some really smart folks and able to even when they got into that mysis you know they knew all the information they they didn't come in thinking oh this company is all roses they knew it had a little bit of hard time and it's a software company and that, that that's a you know can be an either very secure or volatile business depending they certainly went into it eyes wide open and i think they're getting paid well for taking the risk so if they're right it'll be a great investment it's interesting you have a very clear preference for CLO equity other over senior tranches of CLOs where in the BDCs you you definitely it sounds like you're more, much more interested in being at the you know top, a, of, the stack. Yes. top of the stack yeah so I, I think about this whether or not it's a it's a bubble I don't really know but is it possible that even if it is a bubble it's not systemic because the banks don't own it and it's longer term financing so you know if, if tons of money goes into a space the product is mediocre returns and, but but it's not going to be you know a 2008 type moment. It's yeah. it's suboptimal returns. You know maybe you get a five percent return, maybe even you lose five percent. But it's I, I struggle to see it as system wide or you know systemic issue or even a widespread issue where investors suffer significant losses. I think that's improbable. Obviously, any any investment can can have any of those things happen. If it's really a bubble, I picture the air just kind of coming out slowly and. People stuck with suboptimal returns, but not catastrophic returns. Very interesting. Well, Tom, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your, your insights. Don't uh, get to hear this a lot on my show or, or really anywhere. So I really appreciate it. And thanks everyone for watching. Jack, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined.